0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to The Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series featuring expert insight on contemporary religious and political issues. In response to the coronavirus pandemic, we decided to air this episode a month ahead of schedule as it talks about finding joy in a time of suffering and could be of help to our listeners during this time. In this episode, Yale alum Emily Judd interviews Yale Divinity School professor Mary Clark Michella about her research on joy. Professor Michella talks about finding one's life purpose. It's important to find, you know, recognize one's gifts, the things one loves to do, and also... Um, the world's needs and see where they intersect. She describes the biological obstacles we face in pursuing a joyful life. It's easy for us to remember the negative things, and there's even the brain research says we have a negativity bias. And Professor Michelle gives practical tips for reframing our outlook to focus on the good. If we learn to pay attention, you know, to the good things that may seem small, but, you know, really just... Uh, for example, having a friend that you love and that loves you, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing.
1: Welcome, Professor Michella, to the podcast today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, you received a Henry Luce Fellowship in Theology to study joy. How do you define joy and why is it important to study
0: so I look at joy as an emotion. Um, and it's. I also feel a gift of God. And it's something we don't want to miss in this life. And uh, so it's important to cultivate the capacity to um, recognize you know, opportunities for joy and wonder in our lives. But more than a focus on joy on, as an emotion, my second definition has to do with um, joy more as a spiritual path. So kind of an orientation to life um, where we are um, attentive to God's goodness, love, and presence with us.
1: So in applying your research, can you suggest some practices to nurture and maintain a sense of joy in our daily lives?
0: Well, yes. I mean, I think one of the things I learned is that uh, the emotion of joy is often experienced together with two other Emotions And they are interest and wonder. And so I think that um, whether as caregivers or others, um, if we find the things that really interest us and um, allow us a sense of wonder, we will be uh, more able to um, lean into uh, that kind of spiritual path of joy. Um so and I think you know uh, particularly for religious leaders it's important to find you know recognize one's gifts the things one loves to do and also um the world's needs and see where they intersect and um so live live into that. Also to realize that, though we will not uh, necessarily fix all the great problems of the world, that we can be a part of um, changing things that we think are wrong and contribute something along the way.
1: What is the relationship uh, between joy and gratitude? Um, did you find any relationship in your... Uh, research, one thing that I have heard many people say, including Oprah, <laughs> is um, there's something to be said for writing a list of 10 things that you're grateful for every day, and that that can give someone a profound sense of joy. Did you find anything with that I read lots of
0: books about that. And yes, I think there there is a connection. I think, um, you know, there there is an old hymn that was called Count Your Blessings, Count Them One by One, you know, see what God has done. And I do think um, that that could be translated into, you know, in, in a in a pastoral setting, um, uh, encouraging people to take time to reflect on, on the goodness and blessings in their lives. Yes. Um, and I think certainly the daily practice, I actually um, did the practice myself, and I think it is it is more uplifting than you might think. Um, Some days it may be hard to say like, okay, what are two things I'm thankful for today? And yet when people take the time to think about it, there is kind of a change in orientation. And I think what happens is it's easy for us to remember the negative things and there's even the brain research says we have a negativity bias. Mm. So, so if so something we're all kind of pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, if something difficult happens, that sticks in our minds in a in a stronger way. And so it takes almost like five good things to counter one difficult experience, right? So, but if we learn to pay attention you know, to the good things that may seem small, but, you know, really just, uh, for example, having a friend that you love and that loves you, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing. So taking a moment to remember that, and even to connect with that friend can really change um, our outlook on the world. And as I said, it gives
1: us resilience, and therefore, the power to do more. You actually posed this question in a previous YDS article. You asked, how can we be joyful when we know about the suffering that exists in the world? How would you answer that question?
0: I don't think, for one thing, that we need to be joyful every minute. And I don't think the pastoral task is to try to cheer people up. So it's important to say that. Um, But on, on the other side... I don't think we can do this work uh, for any length of time if we don't have a wellspring of um, joy, well-being, goodness, um, connection to God and each other um, that feeds us and that makes us resilient and, you know, capable of connecting with people in their moments of despair or sadness, but not necessarily taking that on ourselves and carrying it around so that you know every single situation weighs us down. So I guess um, for me, I, it became important to realize that um, religious leaders becoming miserable does not really help change the world. If we want to change the world and work for goodness and grace, then um, we need a certain amount of resilience and personal well-being. So the tips would be to take care of oneself, to get a decent night's sleep when possible, to exercise, to move, to think about um, nutrition and uh, stress reduction when possible, and to you know embrace the moments of goodness
1: and grace when they do come along. So you teach a course on pastoral care at YDS, and I struggle with anxiety. And one of the most frustrating things uh, I've heard when I shared about my anxiety to a church leader was his advice to just pray the anxiety away. Should church leaders give advice on medical and psychological issues as well as the spiritual?
0: Well, I teach a course on psychopathology and pastoral care, and I do think it's very important for Religious leaders to um, understand um, the, what psychiatric illness is, to be able to recognize when people are, you know, exhibiting symptoms, and I think it's um, important to um, know when to make referrals to medical providers when um, we recognize um, symptoms or when someone, uh, uh, you know, appears depressed or is. Uh, uh, becoming suicidal or w- whatever they might present when we recognize that there's a problem to make referrals and when possible to work in tandem with with um, medical professionals. And this does not mean um, saying, go see this doctor, I can't help you anymore. I do believe that um, persons uh, struggling with a mental illness do indeed um, need and deserve pastoral care in the sense of accompaniment and um, recognizing that, you know, we're all on a spiritual journey. We all have to come to terms with our limitations as human beings. And there is um, wisdom to be found when someone grapples with an illness and what is often a difficult struggle to get help, get the right help. and. Um, whether that be through uh, medication uh, and or um, uh, talk therapies or other kinds of therapies. Um, In addition to that, having a spiritual community in which one can be open and share one's struggles is very important. And so I think pastors ought to know, understand mental illness, maybe teach courses on it. um, And then that kind of cues their people in so that they realize this is someone I could talk to. Yeah, so I
1: think it's very important. Before coming to YDS in 2010, you served as a church pastor for the United Church of Christ for 13 years. What were some, some challenges that you experienced in transitioning from church leader to academic professor, from preaching to teaching?
0: From preaching to teaching. Well, um, Uh, my first class at Wesley Theological Seminary was uh, quite challenging. I had, there were a lot of attorneys there (laughs) who were students and um, I thought, oh, they're going to sue me if they don't get the (laughs) grades they want. So there, there were some, definitely some uh, challenges, but I guess for me, it was also a great joy uh, because I love um, reading and researching uh, to kind of have a kind of like a second career in which there were connections between what I used to do and what I do now. And I still feel that in some ways, the greatest wisdom that I have to impart about pastoral care comes from my experience in the church, where I, I really, you know, was up against it. And sometimes I felt out of my depth. Um, so going back to school helped me understand my work in the parish better And hopefully, you know, enables me to um, give students the kind of insight they need uh, moving into pastoral situations.
1: So you teach a course at Yale Divinity School titled Pastoral Wisdom in Fiction, Memoir, and Drama. This year, the class brought together Yale students and incarcerated women at a prison in Danbury, Connecticut. How did that partnership come about?
0: Well, I've been interested in the topic of mass incarceration for many years. And a few years ago, during my sabbatical, I took a course offered by the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. Um, at Temple University, mm-hmm. and I trained um, in teaching inside out classes, and that's what we call this model. So we have insiders and we have outsiders. The insiders are the incarcerated persons, and the outsiders are the YDS students. Mm-hmm. And so I trained at um, Greaterford State Prison, and um, that's just outside of Philadelphia. It's a high security men's prison. And my teachers there were the insiders who had um, taken many um, courses, many inside-out courses. And there's a kind of pedagogy that goes with uh, this training um, that encourages face-to-face conversations between insiders and outsiders and a kind of searching approach to knowledge so that people are not just um, taking in lectures are a lot of material but they're thinking about it processing it and exchanging their ideas say
1: about the reading with each other. Hmm. So considering that students living at Yale and women living in a prison system come to a classroom with different perspectives drastically different daily lives and schedules how did you bridge these gaps?
0: Well, um We did some interactive exercises to kind of get to know you, some of which I learned from my training. And I think the thing that really helped um, uh, was our conversation uh, each week focused on a different book. So everyone read a book and wrote a paper every week. The insiders had to handwrite their papers, which they did very diligently. They don't have access to computer technology? No, no. Wow. They're not allowed to go on the internet. A couple of them had access to typewriters, but they weren't very good. So they're really limited. They can't do online research. So all of the teaching had to happen pretty much in the class, or it was based on the reading. And, you know, um, uh, YDS uh, graciously, our deans, Sterling and Hurt, helped uh, provide the books mm. for the insiders. Um, so they read their books and wrote their papers. And it, so the the, t- the topic of conversation was there for us each week. And that's how we kind of came together. And the papers were reflective. So people wrote about how they saw themselves in the literature or how they could relate to it. And um, gradually people told their stories, both insiders and outsiders, you know, through that process.
1: Was there any specific moment that you experienced during teaching this class or a moment that you witnessed during the class that really had a profound impact on you? Well, there were many. Um,
0: for example, we, the first book we read was Maya Angelou's uh, story in I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And of course, um, the incarcerated women also know something about being caged, And um, they could also relate to Maya Angelou's story, many of them, of uh, experiencing trauma at an early age. And one wonderful moment came when one of our outside students, who is a clinician and kind of an expert in trauma care, shared some of her understanding of uh, brain science and what happens to someone when they're traumatized at an early age and how it changes them and kind of limits their choices in certain ways, uh, at least for a time until they process and you know come to terms with what happened to them. And uh, one of our students um, spoke at the closing ceremony we held a couple of weeks ago, and um, Asked the outside student to repeat what she had said, and she's and she talked about how much it helped me to understand my brain and how how it freed me, you know, to go forward. So that was an example of one, you know, such moment.
1: Well, Professor Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on the Quadcast. You're welcome. It's it been a pleasure. <laughs>